From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Off the Post. I'm your host, John Mattis of Post Media, and today on the line from New York, upstate New York, not New York, New York, uh, Ryan Stimson of Hockey Graphs. How's it going, Ryan? Good, John. Good. I'm glad you made that distinction because when I tell people I'm from New York, they immediately think New York City. So I appreciate that, reminding everyone that there is another whole great part of the state. So. <laughs> you don't want to be tied up with all those city folk. No, no. It's not, it's not, my, it's not my favorite place to go anyway. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're in a good spot in western New York. I grew up near the border there, so I understand and today I'm having you on because uh, you recently wrote a really excellent post on Hockey Graphs. It was titled, uh, Identifying Player Styles with Clustering. And uh, it gained considerable traction online. A lot of people were talking about it. And the reason why I like it so much is because it blends analytics with the eye test. It's it's sort of uh, bringing the two worlds together, whereas a lot of analysis seems to be this is analytics, this is eye test, and there's less, or there's not enough, I guess, meshing. So I really enjoyed that. And the thesis of your story or of your article was that you were trying to identify playing styles and, you know, trying to figure out a way that we can look at them and see which playing styles complement each other and which players then uh, would work well on a line or on a pairing. Uh, am I following uh, your line of thinking correctly? No, yeah, that's that's a very nice summation of of the piece. It it really is. Uh, you know, we we uh, I think we do a lot of really good work as far as evaluating players, evaluating teams. You know, who's good, who's not. You know, what we think is going to happen, and you know, what teams, what players are going to score more often than others. Um, but there's you know like an underlying theme, and like a lot of the work I've been doing over the last year or two is. It's just about, okay, well, like, what is actionable in that? Like, how can we use all of this data, use this information to then go to a coaching staff, for example, and say, you know, based on what we know, what we've learned, here is how you could improve this roster without going out and getting, you know, a great shot suppressor, a great possession player. You know, how can you, you know, optimize, you know, how you play and how you optimize your lineup? Because, you know, analytics is all about finding market inefficiencies and taking advantage of them. And I think I still think there's a lot of good work to come um, in exploiting efficiencies, inefficiencies on the actual ice, on the playing surface. Because you know there's there's probably uh, more optimal ways to play this game. And I think stuff like this, you know, is a good stepping stone towards that. Yeah, and in your post, it it, it says that you use 900 games worth of data, and it's all five on five. And it's all uh, people might not realize uh, if they don't know what what you've been up to the last couple of years, but you've been literally tracking micro stats. Whereas you know you pause a frame and, and on on the TV and go, okay, who made the pass there? Um, you know who exited the zone there, etc. You're you're documenting little minute details of the game, and then you put it all together, and it you know produces trends and conclusions and whatnot. Now there's a lot of micro stats involved in in this. Uh, this evaluation, this post that you put out there, and I want to I want to relate it to the playoffs and and some interesting lines that we're seeing in the last couple of weeks in this crazy first round. But first, can you just go into sort of which microstats you tracked and which microstats you know were important to you 
concluding and clustering these player types and just the process in general, you know, how many people were working on it and uh, the type of manpower that was needed. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, you know, it has been going on for a few seasons. It's, uh, you know, I started doing it by myself and it, it blew up a couple years ago. And, you know, more and more people have, have volunteered their time to do it. And I'm, you know, eternally grateful for all these, you know, awesome, awesome people. Um, you know, there's, uh, I usually tweet it out from time to time, but from a prior conference, you know, like a screenshot of just all, literally all the names of people that help out with that. So I'll probably do that again once you post this, because um, they deserve so much credit. And, uh, you know, obviously everybody knows uh, Corey Schneider, uh, you know, who tracks a ton of games too. And he's been uh, picking up a lot of the work this season. Um, with uh, you know just building to our database, so we hopefully can get two full seasons, you know maybe sometime this year. But uh, but as far as the actual data, it's really very straightforward and simple. Uh, we use landmarks on the ice as far as what zone, um, you know what lane of the ice, you know basically from the faceoff dots, the dot line and out versus the dot line and in. Um, you know whether it was from behind behind the goal, below the end line, if it was back to the point, if it was across the slot, if you know resulted in. You know, a shot from inside the home plate area if it was a one-timer. You know, so it's very intuitive and easy to understand things. And, um, you know, it doesn't take too long. I mean, people usually tell me they complete a game, you know, as they're watching it. You know, maybe, you know, 10, 20 minutes more if there was just a lot of shots in the game. But, uh, um, you know, as far as what went into the clustering that we can derive from that, you know, you get a sense of how players contribute. So are they making – the, the primary pass, are they assisting on the final shot? Are they more, you know, building up the play, starting the sequence as more of like a secondary or tertiary, you know, uh, you know contributor? Um, are they getting into those dangerous areas, like passing from behind the net, across the slot? Um, you know, are they more of a shooter? Are they more of a passer? And, you know, what is their total influence? Like how much impact do they have on the team's offense? Like how much of it flows through them? So, you know, once you throw all that into the clustering algorithm, it kind of can separate players out based on how they contribute, how much they contribute, and you can kind of get a, you know, a little bit of a sense of, you know, how they might play, and from there, you know, who might play well together, who's going to complement each other, you know, who's going to overlap each other. You know, you don't want to have too many, you know, maybe one-dimensional players or players that, you know, want to shoot the puck all the time on the ice together because who's going to, you know, pass in the puck, and so it's, it's uh, it's fairly straightforward from start to finish. Yeah, and you ended up binning uh, players into four categories. So there's a balanced forward, and I looked up a few examples, and a guy who is a balanced forward according uh, to your data is a guy like Victor Rask or a guy like Ryan Kessler, a guy like Paul Byron. And then you also have a playmaking forward, so that's you know pretty self-explanatory. Uh, Alexander Barkov, Anze Kopitar, Taylor Hall, uh, you have a shooting forward, so, you know, you think of the Philip Forsbergs of the world, Jeff Carters, Mike Hoffmans, those all make sense. Um, and then you have the dependent forward, which is someone who needs a lot of support, can't carry a line, can't drive a line. And a Brian Rust comes out of that. Jerome McGinley in his old age comes out of that. Josh Anderson. So those are the four categories that you came up with, um, or the data did, I guess. And that leads to the discussion of chemistry, which... Really, you know, we've seen and heard and read about chemistry for years. And if you're watching a game, you know, you, you look at a line and you go, they have good chemistry because they're putting up a bunch of points. It it intuitively makes sense. But you found a way to quantify it and to put numbers behind it. 
and to really show uh, that a playmaker and a playmaker and a shooter can work out fairly well. Uh, three playmakers might work out well. Two shooters and a playmaker is probably further down the list, but still a lethal combination. Uh, in your post, you actually you have it all ranked, all the different combinations. I believe there's about 21 of them. Uh, which one's really graded out highly? Um, as far as, you know, which one's ranked highly, obviously you can get, you know, three playmakers on a line um, because those are, you know, kind of like your do-it-all forwards. You know, if you loaded up a line of, you know, Crosby, Kessel, Malkin, or, or whatnot, like, um, <laughs> you know, th- those obviously you would, you know, see a good return on your investment of their ice time. Um, you know, and then as you go further down the lineup, obviously there's some balanced players and shooters that, that come in along with the playmakers. Um, you know, where, but, but I think that the top of the lineup is where I think, you know, there wouldn't be, there's not going to be a whole lot of surprises. I think where this work gets really interesting is in the middle uh, the lineup and towards the bottom of the lineup, especially where you can then, um, you know, maybe target someone that, uh, you know, might come out as a balanced player and, Maybe to the common fan, to you know, old school hockey thinking, you know, maybe there's not too much between a balanced or a dependent forward, and you know, but it's really kind of the environment that you know those players need to thrive, and you you certainly see a lot of the balanced players. Uh, in fact, a line of three balanced players grades out a little bit higher than a line of three shooters. So you know, it comes down to the skills necessary to make your line better, uh, and then, you know, there's a synergistic effect to that, too, of, uh, you know, who you throw into the line blender, you know, and what you get out of it. Were there any players that surprised you in terms of, you know, you you put it you put them through the system, and then on the other side, say they were a balanced player, and you thought, oh, they, they seem like more of a dependent player based on what I'd seen, or or something along those lines where you go, really, he's a playmaker, he's a, he's a shooter? I thought it was the other way around. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a few surprises, um, you know, whenever you do something like this. And I should, you know, remind everyone this is strictly offensive, you know, data. There's yeah. nothing defensive about it. So, um, you know, I think one of the things, like uh, Kyle Palmieri, you know, the New Jersey Devils graded out as a dependent player. You know, I would have thought he'd be more of a shooter. Um, so there are there are some things in how, you know, the players were clustered, um, you know, that possibly with, with either more data or – you know, maybe taking a different approach could fine-tune it for sure. Um, you know, again, this was a first first crack at this. I think mostly it, it grades out kind of how I expected it to. Um, <clears throat> of course, you know, Leafs fans haven't stopped reminding me that, you know, Mitchell Marner, you know, graded out as a shooter rather than a playmaker, even though all evidence to the contra supports William Nylander as a much better playmaker than him. But, you know, that's probably heresy to say north of the border. So um, <laughs> Yeah, watch what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, they haven't stopped reminding me about that. So we'll see. Um, I actually just pulled uh, another uh, bunch of data from last season and this season, uh, and I plan on updating these over the next couple of days. So if he switches to a playmaker, I'm sure I'll just hear them twice as louder, um, you know, depending on what his numbers are. But I, I think he'll he'll stay in that role. Okay, yeah. Well, speaking of the Leafs, uh, let's start talking about a couple of lines in the playoffs and sort of how they, how they mesh together or don't mesh together, I guess, in some cases. Um, their top line of Austin Matthews down the middle, uh, William Nylander on the wing, and then uh, Zach Hyman on the other wing, it has 63% Corsi in the playoffs. They've had a good year in general. Uh, Connor Brown was, was in for Nylander for a lot of the season, but this has been uh, their top line for a while now. 
Um, you know, they have, they have three decent lines, so it's not, you know, a quote-unquote number one line. But they get used a lot. And Hyman's obviously the one that sticks out as as the dependent guy, and, and that is how he, he gets graded or he gets labeled by by the data and which is fine for this year I think it's it's when you look at their lineup it makes sense you know you don't want to overload your first line that's been well documented by other people in the analytics community that you want to spread out your best players so putting I don't know Nazem Kadri on the first line or putting Marner on the first line doesn't seem like a smart move uh, if you're looking at the big picture and the way that games play out especially in the playoffs with line matching um, and, and Babcock seems to love Zach Hyman. Um, he, he actually coincidentally calls him dependable all the time. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of funny. And, uh, you know, I, I was looking at, at the, the visualization that, that you have on, on the web there and, and the way that it shows the different players and their contributions. And Hyman just has like a little sliver on your, uh, on your visualization tool there. And, you know, you look at Matthews and you look at Nylander and they're just blowing up and you can see their you know, the way that they affect the game. And then you see Hyman, he's just like this little, little man. It looks like, um, and, and like he can skate, he can cycle, he can back check. He can do a lot of good things. Right. But you know, long-term, I really don't think he makes a lot of sense in that role. And I was going like, like I said, off the top, I was going through their lineup and going, you know, what would be a good alternative at this point in the season or just with what they have in the, on their playoff roster. And I mean, you're not going to put Bozak there because, He's a center. Why would you put him on the wing? Kadri can drive his own line. Marner, what is the point of over, overloading one line? So the only, uh, I guess, plan B would be Leo Komarov. Uh, he's he kind of he grades out well with with being with Matthews and Nylander. Except I don't think his skating can keep up with those two guys. So it's one of those things where you know you look at a line and you see that one guy is the weak link, but does does it work within the lineup? Not necessarily. Right. Well, I think, you know, you kind of alluded to it there with, you know, what, what options do they really have? And they really don't have too many. Um, you know, if they if they wanted to load up their top two lines, you know, they would just spend, you know, certain a large part of the get, portion of the game uh, just getting overrun in their own end with, with who else they have in their lineup there. So, um, you know, I think the Leafs, uh, you know, they're going to want to build around, you know, lines with, with Matthews, with Kadri, with Bozak. You know, I, I think those are probably their three centers for at least the, the near future. Um, you know, Marner and Nylander on different lines make sense, and, you know, they'll have JVR there for another season, maybe. You never know what's going to happen in the summer. But really, this offseason for them should be about certainly finding upgrades for, you know, possibly uh, Komarov and, you know, seeing what else they could do with Hyman and Brown if they don't want to, you know, just see how they develop. Um but uh, but but you're you were right about uh, mentioning other people in the community that have looked at you know the advantages of of balancing out your lineup rather than loading up a top line. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do uh, going forward. Please. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of teams that have figured out how to uh, manage their lineup well, the Minnesota Wild, who are they're down three one in their series to St. Louis. So who knows how long they're going to last uh, in the playoff picture? Um, but Jake Allen's been out of control. Good. So. Who knows? Maybe maybe things will turn around. But with Minnesota, their top nine from you know from number one guy to number nine guy are there. There's not a huge step down. No, they. I mean, in some ways, depending on how you configure it, you know, they have you know like three top lines. Uh, they're all you know they have 
an incredible amount of, you know, they don't have a single, you know, dependent player in their top nine, whereas, you know, if you, you know, we were just talking about Toronto, um, you know, that's not the case with them. You know, they have, you know, probably at least three, just depending on how you arrange the lineup. So, um, you know, Minnesota, it's definitely a, you know, a luxury, the the balance and the depth they have. Um, you know, you could say maybe they don't have, you know, a, you know, an elite level talent in their prime, right? And like maybe, you know, what Austin Matthews is going to be, you know, what they hope, maybe they don't have that player, but they can just come at you with so many different ways and so many different players that, um, you know, you, you have to just like, you know, how they could generate offense on a given night. And, and like you said, Jake Allen's just been phenomenal. Funny things happen in the short playoff series. Um, you know, it, it's just a shame that one of the better teams might go out in the first round due to, you know, a goalie playing way over his head. Yeah, and conversely, uh, Nashville wins their series in a sweep. A lot of people online uh, that look at the underlying numbers aren't surprised that they won, but I don't think anyone predicted a 4-0 sweep of the Chicago Blackhawks. And if you relate it to your article uh, in a roundabout way, Nashville actually, they, they, they overload their first line, but I think it's out of necessity because they don't have the forward depth that uh, even just like if you can, if you compare it to Chicago, they don't have that, that same forward depth where they can separate Kane and Taves or, or whatnot. They have Arvidsson, uh, Johansson and uh, Arvidsson, Johansson, and I'm totally Forsberg. blanking on, yes, Forsberg. I was like, there's yeah. another right-handed shot there. Those guys all in the first line. And then, you know, you go through the rest of their their forward corps, and you know, you got Fiala's a good story, and he's he's really blossomed this year. Uh, James Neal and P.A. Parento, but then other than those guys, it's a bunch of. It seems like I I, I didn't look too too far into it, but it seems like a bunch of dependable players or de- dependent yeah. players, I should say. Yeah, I mean, the strength of Nashville obviously comes from you know the, their blue line, whereas you know how how defensemen were graded out in this was. You know, are they more of like a volume shooter like Brent Burns type? Are they more of like a puck-moving type? You know, are they just simply don't do a whole lot offensively and are more defensive-oriented? Or, you know, are they kind of like an all-around, like, you know, like a Victor Hedman, Eric Carlson, Drew Doughty, those type of players. So with Nashville, I think they had the highest number of puck movers on the team. So, I mean, they, you know, with Ellis, Ekholm, Yossi, Subban, you know, they can you know, pretty much go toe-to-toe with anyone, and that just, like, augments their forward performance because, you know, they're so stable on the back end. So, um, but, yeah, I mean, they definitely, you know, would love to, you know, get some help up front and get them, make that lineup a little deeper. Um, you know, you mentioned Fiala. You know, I, you know, not to promote my own podcast, but, you know, I talk, I talk No, about go Fiala. ahead. Promote, promote. <laughs> What's it called again? Uh, I talked about Fiala last fall on our podcast. I wrote something about him a couple months ago, him and Mikhail Granlin. Um, you know, he's a very, very creative, very dangerous player. Uh, it'll be very, very exciting to see how he develops. Um, you know, he has got similar numbers to, you know, leading like, like Mikel Granlin had last year in terms of how dangerous the chances they create are. So um, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, his his uh, true breakout campaign happens next season. Um, you know, they have Mikhail Yarncroy, um, you know, James Neal. They, so they have some good players behind that top line. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, they definitely need a little bit of help uh, down down the lineup, but uh, that defense, of course, somewhat mitigates that. And, and you mentioned Chicago, and, you know, Chicago has obviously been drained over the last years, but one of the things, obviously Kane and Panarin are, are a great duo, but 
you know, you do wonder for the benefit of the team uh, if they played on separate lines, you know, if that might simply just be better. Um, their impact and their influence throughout the lineup uh, probably could have, you know, helped them out the series, I think. Yeah, I wonder if uh, the coach just you know is is in love with that pairing and they've been paired together basically since Panarin came into the league and just yep. doesn't want to kind of let go of that 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 might be one of those psychological things where it's like maybe I should separate them but I don't even know what I don't even want to know what maybe the alternative is to this you know pretty good first line yeah I mean you know they have like Taze and Kane graded out as playmakers uh, you know in this that's I don't think it's any surprise Panarin did as well um, I think you know you'd you would want to build around those guys, whether they're centers or wingers. And, you know, if you put one on each team and then just start slotting players in from there, um, you, know, you may not have, you know, a dominant performance from a duo like Kane and Panarin. But I think, you know, I, I think the ceiling for the team certainly goes higher if you do that versus load up one line and then suffer the consequences kind of on the other line. So, Absolutely. Another line that I looked at, uh, and they're out now, the Calgary Flames, but I was interested in their Goudreau-Monahan-Furlan line because I looked at Monahan and I went, really, he's a he's considered a playmaker? And this might be, you know, one of two things. It might be the data hasn't caught up, uh, there hasn't been enough data on him, or maybe just the eye test is a little off on him because I always associate him with a pure goal scorer and his numbers – um, more or less back that up, 107 goals uh, in his career, short career. And he usually has about 30 goals, 30 assists around there. So that 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 to me says goal scorer, but he, he grades out as a playmaker. Um, but his goal scoring came through this this uh, short playoffs for, uh, for Calgary, four goals in four games. And really, they were the only line producing for Calgary. They, they only had nine goals total, so um, they had almost half of that. And... I, another guy that also uh, raised raised an eyebrow when I was uh, looking through the data was Michael Furlan being a shooter. I don't know if it's just the fact that I don't, you know, when I watch Flames games, I'm not gravitated towards him, so I don't maybe realize his impact, but um, he's a really good transition player according to the data and grades out as a shooter. Uh, have you had a chance to look at the Flames and, and their, their sort of dynamic and their, their lineup makeup? Um, well, I haven't, you know, dug too deeply in, into, you know, a lot of the teams. Obviously, there's, you know, um, I, I wish I could spend more time writing about this, but, uh, you know, I do feel compelled to, you know, continue researching and getting more data out there. Um, but, you know, regarding, you know, like playmaker status, you mentioned like Monahan and, you know, whether or not maybe, you know, he was just a goal scorer. You know, a lot of, you know, playmaking doesn't necessarily entail, um, you know, you're just setting up pass. You know, you're just making passes or whatnot. Like a lot of times, playmaking could be, you know, the ability to. You know, a lot of goal scorers have this to get into the right positions or you know to, you know, fool a defenseman and then you know you present yourself for a pass. You know, from a teammate that you made the pass prior before that to set up the sequence. So you know, playmakers have a lot more you know than simply just you know making passes. Um, as far as Furland, you know, a lot of these shooters, you mentioned his transition play, when I broke it down by each cluster and looked at the percentiles for each metric that players fell into, um, transition play among the shooters was really high right next to the playmaker. So, you know, I think there's something about players with a shot-first mentality. If they pick up the puck in the neutral zone or in their own end, you know, they are looking to attack, and so they are looking to, to carry it in and then get in there and create some offense. So, um you know, I'm not uh, not totally surprised that that someone 
you know, who you mentioned, like, you know, his eye test, like he might have good transition skills. You might think about him as a shooter, but, you know, could fall into that category. Yeah, that's why this diet is great. It kind of, you know, maybe maybe you don't pick up on all the all the little details when you're watching the game. And then you look at it, you go, oh, Ferlin, like, you know, he really sort of supports the play and is, is actually a, a pretty good contributor. Yeah, um, and that's the other thing about stuff is, like, you know, it should it should always make you – you know, think a little differently maybe about a player or a team or what you're, you know, what you're seeing. You know, if it just went top to bottom, confirmed everything, like, oh, yeah, this is what I thought, then it's probably not doing a good job of, yeah. you know, pushing the boundaries of things. Um, so. Now, I wanted to talk to you about the New Jersey Devils, but do you have any other lines that you want to talk about first? Uh, well, I can just say that Taylor Hall makes every line he's on great. <laughs> so. There you go. Yeah, you're, you're a Devils blogger or maybe a former. Do you still blog about the Devils? Uh, I wrote a few pieces this season on like four checking and like breakouts, okay. and some other some other things, but not not nearly as much as I used to. No. Nevertheless, uh, they're actually a team that I I don't want to say forgot about this season, but they were it's so okay. they okay. were slow they were so <laughs> low on my you know my watchability radar or just on my radar in general. And I mean, they finished twenty seventh in the league, so um, I I wasn't really missing out on much, but I just kind of, you know, was, was focused on different things. And then, you know, I'm having you on and I'm like the devils, what, what do they have there other than Taylor Hall, elite winger and Corey Schneider, elite goalie, but a goalie that's not getting younger. Um, and then I look and Kyle Palmieri, who you mentioned earlier, um, 53 points tied in with Taylor Hall. And then other than that, there wasn't much to, to get happy about. Yeah. I mean, they, um, you know, the issue with the Devils, and they don't have much of a blue line. And when, when you don't have much of a blue line, it makes it just that much more difficult to transition and even get into the offensive zone and get out of your own zone. So it really depresses the value of the rest of the forwards and the rest of the team. Um, you know, Adam Henrique is a good complimentary player. You know, he's not someone that uh, is going to, you know, drive play like a Taylor Hall or anything like that. Like, he can, he can score. Um, but you know he he's not going to do it on his own. Um, Palmieri, pretty similar to that. You know Travis Dajak uh, is a good he's a good player. I think he's a little underrated by a lot of people. Um, you know, but they have like you know the the ghost of Mike Camilleri walking around whenever he's healthy enough to shoot <laughs> up. They you know they they're you know they have some younger players like Pavel Zaka that they you know who who has been decent you know in his debut. I think he's only like 20 years old. Um, and, you know, they have some younger forwards that they hope, you know, help them out going forward. But, uh, you know, on the, on the back end, they, you know, they traded Larson. Um, you know, Damon Severson is probably the defenseman Edmonton should have gone after. Um, but, you know, that's a conversation for another day. And, you know, they have Andy Green, who is steady as they come, but he's getting older. So, uh, you know, they need to rework a lot of the blue line and also pick in or pick up, you know, a few other forwards. But uh, the blue line is the main concern this season. The, the team itself is well positioned for the expansion draft. They have plenty of cap space, so I would not see them. I would not be surprised to see them take like a hard run at like Kevin Check or, um, you know, or some other some other players via trades or using that cap space to make trades. Um, this will be a very interesting and pivotal summer for the franchise. I think. I hadn't thought about Chad and Kirk uh, landing there, but that's interesting. And Ray Shiro has been there since May 2015. John Hines has been the coach since. June 2015. Um, how, how would you evaluate what they've done so far, and do you give them a lot of rope, a lot of leash here, like to, to you know tear down or or 
are they running out of time before you know maybe they're they're on the hot seat? No, I I think they they definitely get. I mean, because that's the thing is like cause they had. I mean, when they took over this team, like Lou Lamarillo left this team with like nothing. Like this team was not good, and um, you know that that 2012 Cup run was certainly certainly great to watch, um, certainly fun to go through. But you get the sense that it really was one of the worst things that could happen for the franchise because it fooled them into thinking they were better than they were. Um, you know, then you start handing out deals to like Bryce Salvador for like four, three or four years, and you know, you, you don't pay up for Zach Parise, and <clears throat> then Ilya Kovalchuk decides that he's going to go play in Russia. So, like, a lot of things happened that contributed to that, but, you know, signing Mike Camilleri to a five-year deal wasn't a good move. Um, you know, when Yarmir Yager is your best player for two years, like, that kind of is just, that's the state of your franchise. But as far as the two of them, I think they've done um, a good job of bringing them back to, like, there's a plan now. Like you can kind of see hope. You can see future players. Right. And, um, so, like I don't, I don't think they're on the hot seat yet. I think this is probably a big off season, and next year will be a big season. So, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind a year from now. But um, as of right now, I'm, you know, totally good with you know giving them another year and, and letting them see what they do. And um, I think they were probably uh, a little. Not ahead of schedule, but I think they surprised how they played last year with some people, and so that got people more excited. And you know, then you basically let Larson go and bring in Ben Lovejoy, and, and you let David Schlemko go, where you know, like that that was obviously going to hurt, and they never really got better back there. So, well, and the the elephant in the room is that the Metro is so strong now. When when the Devils get get good, yep. I don't know, maybe other teams will fall off, but it's it's tough sledding in that division right now, and. I'm assuming their record against the Metro was just was terrible this year, considering the records that the other teams uh, ended up with. Yeah, I mean that that is the other thing too is you know if they had played in the Atlantic, who knows? Maybe they contend for a playoff spot this year because that conference was atrocious. But um, you know, it's, it is difficult when you have to play you know Pittsburgh when you have to play Washington. Um, you think maybe the Rangers fall off a little bit here, and um, you know maybe you know they join the Devils soon towards the bottom of that conference. At some point, you have to figure Carolina's going to, you know, take a step forward. Um, you know, but, you know, Philly, you know, so I think if they have a good summer, I think they'll be right there with the bubble teams in the conference like Philly, like Carolina, um, you know, just kind of revolving over that last wild card spot, really, because I don't think they're challenging anybody anytime soon for a top three spot in that, that conference. All right. Let's uh, revert back to playoff talk just for a second, then I'll let you go. Out of the teams that, uh, or I guess the series, if you look at the series that are finished, so Calgary and Anaheim, obviously Anaheim won that. They they won handily. Uh, uh, Nashville beat Chicago, that's over, and Pittsburgh beat Columbus. Out of those three, which one are you the most surprised by in terms of that it's over already and maybe maybe even the team that advanced? Uh, I was surprised Anaheim swept Calgary. To be honest, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I think I picked Anaheim in my bracket that I posted on Twitter at the start of the playoffs. But, you know, I thought it was going to be a, a better series because Calgary, you know, obviously has some, some great defensemen, and you know, they have one of the best lines in hockey, really. And um, I thought it was just unfortunate that, you know. Like I don't think anyone ever predicts a sweep, and it's unfortunate that you know fans don't get to see at least one playoff win um, in their building. But um, 
I, I would think I was most surprised with that. I thought Pittsburgh, even without Latang, I mean, Columbus is, I don't think really people know what Columbus really is, and I don't think they really know. Um, you know, they got off to a historic start mostly because of their power play, and, you know, that dried up. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot there, I think, that, that people were that excited about, especially in this matchup. So, um, obviously, Nashville sweeping Chicago is, Surprising and how they did it, but you know I don't think many people, as you mentioned, were that surprised that they won that series. Um, so I'll tell you what, though, if, if Ottawa goes off and finishes Boston in five games, I will be very surprised at that one. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, I, think... I mean it, it, it's entirely possible. Like short short series, anything can happen. Jake Allen is, you know, going to beat Minnesota all by himself basically after they've been you know run ragged in that series, and Eric Carlson has basically decided that they're going to win this series. So. Yeah, I had I had Sens over Boston in seven, and it was like just a total coin flip. And I'm going like, uh, I don't know, Carlson, and <laughs> like just you know what I mean. You have like these internal battles, and then I'm just like, okay, whatever, Ottawa. And then mm-hmm. it's worked out well. But like, I mean, I did the same thing with Chicago and Nashville, where I thought it was gonna be really tight, and I picked Chicago. So, I mean, I don't think uh, anyone's bracket is uh, is in good shape uh, or will be in good shape after the first round because they'll be. Um, some upsets, there'll be some head scratchers, and even like you said, Nashville sweeping is a pretty big surprise, even though a lot of people had them pegged getting into the second round. Oh yeah, I mean, my bracket's done. I had the Wild going all the <laughs> way and winning the thing, so you know, it's, it's uh, you know, I didn't account for Jake Allen uh, <laughs> yeah. channeling as Dominic Hasek, So No kidding. Yeah. Alright, Ryan, uh, I really appreciate your time, and how can people find your work? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at RK underscore Stimp. Uh, most stuff I write is at Hockey Graphs. Um, you know, the few Devils-centric pieces over at All About the Jersey. And I am working on something kind of rather ambitious ah. uh, and, and very very large in scope right now that uh, I don't even know if I'll be able to post it because people at Hockey Graphs will probably yell at me because it'll be too long. So I might just have to release it as some sort of separate document. But um, <laughs> It sounds very wanna, secretive. You know, What'd you say? This sounds very secretive. Yeah, it, no, it's it's uh, it's it's been in the works for a long time, and I, I think it'll be really good. I think people really appreciate it. It's kind of building off a lot of things we talked about regarding, you know, merging data and, um, you know, the eye test, you know, work chemistry, just you know, talking about how to play on the ice and exploiting those efficiencies, and um, so you won't want to miss that. But hopefully, hopefully, sometime soon. Um, it just it's like the project that just never ends. Fair enough. Yeah, I think uh, everyone's got one of those where you just keep plugging away at it. Um, and I guess I should say, uh, if you want to find Ryan's Hockey Graphs article that we were talking about, probably your best bet is to Google identifying playing styles with clustering and maybe add on uh, Hockey Graphs and, and you'll find it there. That'll bring you right to the story. So, uh, and again, yeah, you, can actually, you can also find it. it's right pinned to my profile. Oh, perfect. Too, so right awesome. There. All right, Ryan, thanks again. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. We'll